My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Paul Kingsnorth. Um, he is a writer and the founder of the Dark Martin Project and uh, the um, current um, essayist at Substack, in a way, uh, you would say, or um, this is your, your most current project, The Abbey of, of Misrule. Yeah, I'm writing a series of essays on Substack. Um, really, yeah, call, I'm calling it The Abbey of Misrule and it's really a kind of investigation into Everything, really. Uh, It's an investigation into the kind of machine culture we're living in and how we got here and how it's kind of leading to the the upheaval of the culture, really. Um, I've been been writing about this stuff on and off in different ways for 20 years or so, and I'm really trying to get to the heart of why things are falling apart everywhere at the moment, which they certainly seem to be in the West and not just in the West. Um, So, I mean, it's it's probably an impossible ambition, but I'm, I'm just trying to dig into what the root cause of some of this is because you know we're all um we're all kind of it seems to me that culturally where i live in in the west generally we're kind of thrown around on the tide of of sort of cultural upheaval and all sorts of arguments and divisions all the time but there's got to be something going on underneath that's got us to this point um and i'm interested in what that is i think and that's really in different ways what i've been writing about my whole life i think yeah, yeah, you you strike me as a as a seeker. Like everything I've I've read of yours and and your journey that I've you know I've heard about on other podcasts and read about. And uh, you had a, a very good uh, essay in, in First Things, kind of detailing how you got at least at least from a spiritual perspective to where you are now. Um, so um, I I feel like there's there's kind of a congruence there as well because I've I've had a completely different path, but you know I feel like you know a, a lot of people are converging to truths. Through very different paths um, that kind of have a, a bit of a synchronicity now, and maybe we would ca- we call it different things, but it's essentially the idea that you know man cannot live without religion, without ideology, even if if we want to you know mm-hmm. expand the, the the lens a little bit. So um, uh, what I've been exploring on this podcast and and the the previous guest who recommended you and that I look into and I, I wasn't aware of your work before then was was Charles Haywood Haywood, and um, he like myself is kind of an explorer of of this post liberal moment I would say and a lot of people who who've come on this podcast are thinkers in, in kind of this post liberal vein and I'm I'm curious what your relationship is to to liberalism um, because to, to me it feels like that's that's a, a hot spot that's somewhere where a lot of um, to me a lot of explanation for our current malaise may lie mm. the, the the core idea yeah. of liberalism yeah I I think that's true and I think it's you know, to, to go back to what you said just now, um, man cannot live without, well, man cannot live without God, actually. I mean, that's really, that's what it comes down to for me. And I surprised myself by saying that because I wasn't brought up religious and I was always kind of had this um, typically Western individualist suspicion of religion. You know, you have that, especially if you come from England, religion is extremely unfashionable in England, as you probably know. Um, 
um, unless you're from an ethnic minority, and then it's kind of okay. And actually, funnily enough, um, ethnic minorities in Britain tend to be far more religious and traditionalist than most native British people, which is interesting in itself. My wife is from an Indian family, and um, she was brought up as a Sikh. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's rather a lovely religion, actually. And it's um, striking how different her childhood was from mine in many ways, just in terms of having that spiritual underpinning to it, which is something I had to rediscover myself. I ended up coming back to Christianity or going to Christianity because I became an Eastern Orthodox Christian this year, which is in some ways strange for an Englishman, but uh, in some ways not at all. It seems like the, the kind of ancient faith in a way. But yeah, I mean, to me, we're in a spiritual crisis um, all across the Western world. And that's that's the, I think I've known that for a long time, but I wouldn't necessarily have known how to talk about it. I started off as an environmental activist in my 20s. Uh, and the destruction of the natural world was part of the crisis, as far as I could see, because a you know a, a civilization or a culture or whatever we call ourselves that is ravaging creation in order to feed itself short-term stuff is a sick one, um, and I still believe that to be true. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Once you start to pull at the, all the threads of this, and you start to say, well, why is this happening? What's wrong with the culture? What's wrong with nature? These two kind of sources, I think, that we need as human beings, an attachment to culture and attachment to nature, are really the same thing. Um, and they're always entwined in any kind of decent society. And we're ripping both of them apart. Um, and yes, liberalism with a small L is kind of the manifestation of that. But I think that that is also something you have to go back beyond and say, okay, well, look, I mean, I read Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, a while back. And it's very good. You know, it's a really good analysis um, of exactly how we got here. Liberalism, according to him, failed because it succeeded, right? It ripped us all apart from effectively everything. We're all unmoored individuals in this giant industrial machine, uh, and now we're lost. We're lost, and we're, we're looking at our screens all day, and especially young people, they haven't got a clue at all what would, what would moor them down or where their community or culture has gone. So that's a kind of cultural crisis. But, you know, how did it happen? How did... I mean, I started off this essay series by saying, look, we hear a lot about the crisis of the West, so what's the West? And when you go back to that question, you realise that the only reason we're talking about West at all is that we're talking about what used to be Western Christendom. The only thing that ties the West together was the Catholic Church, really. There's nothing else that these countries have in common with each other. I mean, the West has spent enough time fighting amongst itself for a thousand years, right? So the thing that tied us together was the Christian faith. And the Christian faith, the Western Christian faith, morphed into, through the Enlightenment and the Reformation and various other kind of upheavals, it morphed into liberalism. And so liberalism is almost, to me, Christianity without Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then liberalism has kind of morphed as it's fallen apart into, into whatever we would call the social justice movement, the woke movement, which is kind of the Sermon on the Mount without God or, or, or forgiveness, which is, <laughs> which is a really terrible sermon. But we've got to that point precisely because once you unmoor the individual from culture and nature and God, then, then you're lost. And so the question becomes, what the hell do we do about that at this point? Um, and the answer can't be just going back to something because you can never go back to anything. Um, you can't return to the 12th century even if you wanted to, just as the liberals can't return to the 18th or the 19th century, which is what they'd like to do at the moment. Um, there's no going back, except as far as I can see, and I'm sort of thinking as I go along on this, that you know, if, if God is real and if the story of Christ is real, which a Christian believes it is, then that's eternal and that's always there. And that hasn't gone anywhere, whether or not we've forgotten about it. So if you return, as you say, as so many people are through different routes, if you start to return back to the sacred center, regardless of, forget about the culture for a minute, if you return back to that and you start to build yourself around that, then the culture kind of builds itself around you. 
So it just, I think I've got to the point where I'm thinking the only, the only work that's useful to do at this point is a kind of reconstruction project. You know, you start right at the beginning, you start right on the ground again, locally, and you start to build up places where we can be human again, actually. And there's a real need for that. And I'm also maybe like you, I'm just seeing this stuff everywhere. People from so many different backgrounds and traditions and cultures and left and right and neither are all coming together and saying exactly that, that there's a great, there's a void and people can feel it, you know, and they're trying to find out what it is. And it's, as I say, being becoming a Christian certainly shocked me. I didn't know that was going to be the answer, but <laughs> it seems to have been the path I was taken down. So I'm still kind of digging into it, really. Yeah, I think the it's it's extremely interesting to me because you have converted to a, particularly a, a Romanian flavor of of Orthodox Christianity, mm. just kind of a smaller church in a way in the whole uh, Orthodox kind of Byzantine rite. And um, um, yeah, could you could you kind of tell the story? How did you get to you know this this niche religion and why why did it appeal to you? Yeah, it's a very good question, really. I mean, I, I felt. Uh, as, as you said, I wrote this essay in First Things called The Cross and the Machine, and it was they asked me to write something about my conversion, and I thought it would be a useful thing to try and work it out in my own head how this had happened, because my family were <laughs> quite surprised, and a lot of my readers were quite surprised as well by this. Um, I can only say that I was, for quite a long time, I mean, look, I was a Buddhist for a long time. Uh, I've been on a kind of spiritual quest. Like you say, I'm a seeker, which is a, it, it's kind of carry, that's kind of a cross that you carry in, in itself. Um, and I was a Buddhist for a long time, uh, and Buddhism is is a really powerful tradition, but it was God I was looking for, it turned out, and there's no God in Buddhism, so I needed something else. Um, I looked into being an environmentalist. I started rummaging around in the neo-pagan cupboard, and I kind of became a witch. I became a Wiccan for a while, um, and that was fun, but also weird and disturbing in some ways, uh, and also reconstructed and not quite real. But what was happening to me really for quite a while as I was having dreams, I was having visions, strange things were happening to me that it's difficult to explain. I felt like I was being hunted by Christ, actually. Um, and I resisted it for a very long time because I didn't want it to be true, because <laughs> I didn't want to be a Christian. Because what I thought Christianity was was something I thought I didn't like. Um, and I think that's very, very common in the West. We feel like we're kind of inoculated against what we think Christianity is. But actually, the real flavor of it is not that. Um, and anyway, this, the, to cut a long story short, I really felt I was quite literally dragged out of what I was doing and taken into Christianity. And I had to just eventually give in, do a lot of reading, do a lot of thinking, and then I'd do a lot of praying. And I said, I said, I need a church. Where do I find a church? And quite soon after that had happened to me, the I live in Ireland and the first Orthodox monastery in Ireland for a thousand years opened up about 40 minutes away from me. And it's a Romanian monastery, although it's open to anybody. It's run by Romanian nuns. Um, and I just sort of plucked up the courage and said, could I come along and see what the liturgy is like? Because I'd, I'd read about orthodoxy. I was intrigued by it. And the, the appeal to me was that orthodoxy has a living mystical tradition, which certainly Western Christianity or certainly the Protestant strain doesn't. I think there's a bit of it in Catholicism, certainly, but it seems to be very much alive in orthodoxy. And there was something about that that really grabbed me. And the more I read about it, the more I talked to people, there was something that, that was there that really didn't seem like it felt entirely right, but it didn't seem like what I thought Christianity was. And yeah, so I went along to the liturgy and I met a priest and the long story is the long story is cut short by me getting baptised in the River Shannon in January, uh, which was freezing um, <laughs> just this year. And so, yes, it, it's, it is the Romanian church, but there's, you know, there's, there's others like me who are from other backgrounds in it too. But it's just been enormously friendly and welcoming, actually. I was surprised that 
they were happy to have this weird English guy wandering in and 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 sort of throwing himself literally into the river. But um, yeah, it's been quite life changing, and it's um, you know there's two thousand years of mystical teaching to to dig into really, and it feels like something that is at the same time very foreign, but also completely natural. It's a very odd thing to describe, but yeah, it feels like a it feels like a blessing. Yeah, I just just reading your account of it, um, in, in your essay, it, it to me it kind of still I have a tension with the with the Romanian Orthodox Church because it is the church that I grew up, you know, grounded mm. by when I was when I was just so to me it's kind of like you know like the vicar that you were describing, but a way <laughs> like ten thousand yeah. times worse because to me the vicar and and you know it has kind of this 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 Anglo sheen where you know it's it's a, it's a high status thing even you know the the crusty old vicar it's it's you know he's a character out of you know the books that I was reading and uh, you know. Mm when I was at home and I was like, oh, this is, this is something to strive towards as, you know, the, the, the Orthodox people around me were, you know, completely mindless, you know, they were, they were mm. worshiping superstition. And to mm. me, the Orthodox church seemed even more superstitious because of all the rites, because of the discomfort that you had to, you know, subject yourself to through the long, you know, liturgies and you, you couldn't even, you know, you couldn't even sit down. You had to stand up, you know, there was also, mm chanting and yeah it just seemed seemed completely yeah you know if if catholicism was crazy i thought you know this is completely beyond the pale <laughs> so mm -hmm. um it it is interesting to me that you know it's, now i'm kind of slowly um starting to look into it <laughs> in, in my old age and <laughs> understanding that there, there might be something more to it um but there's still there's still that like you said you know you felt that the the church was empty it was it was dead already by the time you were supposed to be you know integrated into mm -hmm. it in 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 the UK um here as well to me it felt i mean i have to admit it felt very low status to be mm -hmm to be, you know, Christian and to be, I don't know, to be interested in, in all of this, you know, the, the people that I, that I knew of that were very into religion, there was kind of a gradient, you know, the more rural you were, the more deeply religious you were. And, you know, being mm. from Eastern Europe, you know, you, this is the, the place you want to escape, especially if you're someone with any sort of intellectual ambition, you want to, you know, rid yourself of, of that association. So um, it's, it, it is interesting how, you know, <laughs> you come full circle uh, and mm. especially seeing someone from, you know, from a, from a high status tradition, such as yourself, you know, come into the Orthodox church and, you know, and, and admire it. And then, you know, describe its its rights as something as something revelatory is um is is really interesting it makes it makes me finally want to want to be a bit more curious about it it's very interesting to me because it's um yeah i mean it's almost like i've gone the opposite way but i've also gone the same way so i mean i mean for me when i look at the church of england you know i'm sort of fond of the church of england i was never religious my parents never were so i was never baptized or anything like that the church of england as you say has a sort of um even now has a sort of Agatha Christie thing to it, you know, a sort of nice country vicar thing, but that's very much dying on the vine. But the Church of England's problem, ironically, has, has been its total embrace of liberalism, actually. I mean, in every sense, not just in the political sense, but in the sense that it's become so worldly um, that it is, I mean, in a way, the Church of England was always worldly. It was always the state church. So it's always had that tension of trying to represent the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man at the same time, which never really works. I think the Orthodox Church probably has a bit of that too. Um, but the Church of England, I don't know what it believes in anymore. You know, And when I became a Christian, I said to myself, I really need 
to get to the root of the faith, right? I want to go back to the tradition. I want to find out what the church has always believed. I want to find the most unchanged church, actually. Not because I just think things are good because they're traditional, but because, you know, the the orthodox view of tradition is that it's a living thing. Um, so it's not just a static museum thing that you want to go back to because it's unchanged. Um, but it has to be, you know, it's, it's a living thing, but it, if it's the truth, it doesn't change. You know, and actually that's broadly the Christian tradition. If if you really are a Christian and you think that this is the revealed truth, then it's not going to change just because it's unfashionable. Um, or because it's low status. And of course, Christ was very low status. That's that's the that's the glory of the religion, actually. He, was, he used to hang around with low status people all the time. So so I think being a Christian, certainly in the West, is just a low status thing now. We've gone back full circle to what the church used to be at the beginning, where the Christians are the weird outsiders and people are throwing rocks at them. Um and yeah, so funnily enough, it was the Orthodox Church I went to because precisely, I suppose, because of all the stuff that you're identifying with the, the long liturgy that hasn't changed since the fifth century and, uh, you know, the incense and the rest of it. And the fact that it still feels like it's Constantinople in the 10th century, which I kind of like <laughs> um, being a traditionalist at heart. Um, there's a, even though there's all, all sorts of problems with it, it, it maintains, it's got a core of tradition that to me, feels like it's the most unchanged since the time of the apostles. And also, it's because because it's a foreign thing to me and because I'm not Romanian, I don't have the association, you know. So I don't really know about the politics of the church or what it's like in Romania. Um, and I'm really trying to avoid finding out. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's actually a good thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not getting involved. You know, I don't, uh, I'm not having Orthodox church arguments. And it's good. And I don't speak Romanian, really. So, uh, so I don't have to get engaged in it. And, and actually, that's quite a good thing because it means I can focus on the faith and not the, the kind of cultural arguments around it. And if I joined the Anglican Church, I think I'd I'd be too busy, you know, I'd be far too tempted to get engaged in the, the kind of politics of it. So, yeah, coming in as a foreigner is, is quite a good thing in that sense. It's different when it's your church, you know, like you say, but the, to, <laughs> to when it's not. Yeah, it's... Uh... It, it, it is interesting because, uh, you know, orthodoxy in general, we have also, we have different flavors of orthodoxy here. We even have kind of a, mm. a Roman, um, you know, a Catholic orthodoxy type. We call it um, uh, Greek Catholic. That's very specific to this to this region where they have a Byzantine rite, but they're still part of the Church of Rome. All mm. sorts of uh, exotic. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, that's quite intriguing. Yeah, so it's uh, and, and the I think the, the the interesting thing, and maybe for an, for an outsider as well looking into it, there is a deep kind of magical, mystical tradition. There's a lot of kind of superstition. That's that. I mean, I would call it superstition, but maybe we, we could call it like magic or, or something. That's that's mm. you know kind of this this old world halo around what's going on there. And for example, if you if you were to go into the countryside and you would speak to the, to the very religious, maybe old old women who who live there. Their um, beliefs are intertwined with um, with literal magic. Like they believe in in witches. They believe in mm. curses. You know, like for example, like my mother still. You know, she she's quite a quite a worldly woman, but still she like bought my my baby like a little amulet for the evil eye, so that people wouldn't you know I don't know curse the baby. And you know, there's there's still like like that stuff. You know, that I don't think that's very common. Like if you know, I'm not mm. sure your mother in, in in the UK would you know buy amulets and <laughs> do stuff. Oh, like that. they should. They should. It's good. They should do more of that. So that's uh, I like. I like the idea of that. Actually, when I was young, my mum, who is not Christian at all, did buy me a St. Christopher amulet, actually, to protect me when I was travelling, which was quite intriguing. Yeah. Because she didn't even believe in St. Christopher, so it just goes to show. Yeah. 
No, I mean it's it's in some ways orthodoxy in that sense that you're talking about. It's almost like a it's like a view back into medieval Europe, actually. Um, I mean, not so much in 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 Ireland, I suppose, but certainly probably in places like rural Romania, like you're talking about this that that view back into the mindset of what it would have been like in England or anywhere else is really is really intriguing to me because, as I say, I think everything that's happening in our culture now is, you know, the whole culture, if it is a culture, is built on this Christian substrate, whether we know it or not. It's just the reality. All of our values, all of our morality is built on a Christian substrate and all of the stuff that's happening with the kind of culture war at the moment I see as a kind of, you know, what, what the woke are doing in the culture war, if you like, is challenging Christianity, even though they don't know that necessarily. Um, it's almost like a, it feels like a, a Puritan movement, actually. It feels like something like what happened after the end of the English Civil War when you had the literal toppling of statues and the smashing of churches and all this kind of stuff. So it's a, it's really interesting to me to see that, come to the disturbing conclusion that it's still a religious battleground, actually, the whole thing. Um, and liberalism as such was a sort of historical attempt in the West to open a space that wasn't religious for a few hundred years, and it sort of worked a bit. Um, and, and it wasn't all bad either, but it also ate itself because precisely because it didn't have that spiritual basis to it. And so it's almost like we're, we're, we're the wheels turning. We're going back into a religious world now, even though people don't necessarily see it as that. And, you know, you said earlier ideology or religion, and ideology is almost like a sort of, I think Simone Weil said that Marxism was a, what did she call it? It was like a, an, it, it was just a badly constructed religion, I think she said. Um, because it's religion without a spiritual core, it just puts the idolatry of economics at the heart of everything instead, and and then it tries to destroy society and culture. But that doesn't work because actually, fundamentally, we're not economic beings; we're spiritual beings. And once you come to that conclusion, everything's up in the air. You know, <laughs> society looks much more interesting. And I'm starting to realise that humanity is a religious animal. Actually, it's a spiritual animal more than it is anything else. And so. You know, there's there's endless potential for good and bad to come out of that. Yeah. Do you think there is a, a danger in the fact that liberalism, in in the way it's constructed now, is in a way a hollow religion, but it doesn't really see itself as a religion. It, it doesn't recognize itself as one. So, is there a kind of a, a, a danger of it escalating uh, by it considering itself just common sense? You know, it's it's not. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that was one of the points that Patrick Deneen made in in his book, wasn't it? That it's an. Uh, or I think he put it as, he said it was an ideology that doesn't know it's an ideology. And I think that's true. I mean, everything's either an ideology or a religion. There's always a worldview. Um, and, you know, fundamental to the liberal worldview is, is is the kind of myth of progress that we always improve ourselves through the use of science and technology and liberal education and the rest of it. And it is, it is, if it's not a religion, it's an ideology. It has a very particular view of what the human being is, you know, and what the human being can be, which is the worldview I was brought up with. Um, which is that we're basically rational individuals making choices. And whether you're talking about the kind of neoliberal economic version of that or the cultural liberal version of that, it's the same thing. You know, we're, we're, we're individuals, we're detached from community, we're detached from place, we're detached from God, and we can just kind of choose our own whatever. It's a consumer view of reality. That's what it ends up as. It's not what it started as. Um, yeah, so I think that is, and if you look at the history of liberalism, it, it sort of emerges from, the wars of religion, the Thirty Years' War and the, the, the great fights after the Reformation. And many of the early liberal thinkers were trying to construct a rational world so that we wouldn't have to have religious wars anymore. 
by using you know science and, and reason and philosophy to get to the heart of, of humanity and, and, and dumping religion and superstition. But it didn't work because that's not what we are. It's, yeah, I think it's just based on a flawed understanding of what humans are it's a, and a flawed understanding of what the universe is, a kind of a material empty thing that we can rationalise and control. And from that comes all of the, the kind of chaos that we're in now. That's how it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, you know, like I said, that's one of the conclusions I'm, I'm slowly coming to as well. Um, I've, um, it's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> it blows the whole world apart once you start to think like that. And it, it is very embarrassing as well because I used to be very cringy <laughs> as well. Like I was, I was one of those people out, out in the streets protesting. Yeah, no, not not my finest hour. Or maybe it was. You know, a lot of these things, I feel like you kind of have to go through them to to. Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, it's a journey. It's like if, if one thing I like about the Christian worldview, I think, is that it's, it seems to me that the world is like a testing ground. You know, you have to sharpen the the blade of your soul on the stone of the world and and you have to go through all sorts of stuff i mean i'm i'm 50 next year and it took me this long to get to this point so i've been through all sorts of things but my wife always says this to me because i say oh god i wish i'd got here quicker could have i could have had 20 years of uh being of, of doing this earlier and she says no you had to go through all that to get yourself to the point where you could see this and i think that's right you know you have to you have to put yourself through all sorts of things before you you realize what works and what doesn't this seems to me to be a, a lesson for our civilization as well. I feel like there is, there's, you know, the fact that we're here, um, I feel like everyone in a way needs to go through it. Um, and mm. there's also kind of a class aspect to it because, you know, I've, I've been able to afford in a way to, to be a seeker and to go through it and to put myself through it. Um, but I feel like, you know, this, this very enticing form of, of limbic capitalism, um, it, it's, it's very seductive and it kind of blocks a lot of people from, from seeing the reality of it. Like it's, um, um, it's, I don't, I don't know how to, to describe it. Like, um, it, it takes, it takes time to go through it. And it feels a bit like a luxury sometimes, um, you know, kind of this this asceticism that you come you come to at one point, or the, the renunciation of the self, sacrifice, things like that. Um, the world around us isn't really constructed to to tell you about this stuff, to tell you about the value mm-hmm. of it. Um, so um, I don't know, I don't know exactly where I'm trying to get with this, but it, it does feel to me like if is there a way to do this at scale to to, uh, to enable epiphany at scale, or um, must everyone yeah. do the the long slog and maybe maybe not everyone will make it. Yeah, I like the idea of epiphany at scale. Um, I suspect the answer is no. You know, I think epiphany at scale is what Mark Zuckerberg's trying to do with his metaverse. You know, if we can all just go into the alternative constructed reality. I mean, this is you know, I've written quite a bit about this. These guys who run Google and who run Facebook, the whole Silicon Valley crowd. What they are literally trying to do, it seems to me, is to create, to build heaven with technology. They're trying to build a world with eternal life and no harm. Um, and and that's, you know, if you read the, just look at the absurd, ridiculous thing that Mark Zuckerberg wrote when he launched his, his meta scheme last week. It's like it was written by a 12-year-old. It's like a fantasy of living forever and, and tra- teleporting into your mum's birthday party and all of this kind of stuff. And that's that's sort of epiphany at scale. I think that I don't know. I think that the work has to be personal, you know. But you can. The thing is, as you said, the whole of the culture or the anti-culture that we live in is is designed. It's built to take us away from all of that and to tell us that that is absurd 
And so it does feel like a privilege when you have the, like you say, have the time to do it. But actually, if you look again, if you look at the saints in the Orthodox Church or any church, actually, and not just in the Christian tradition, most of them are uneducated. Most of them are poor. Most of them are, you know, including the apostles and and and, and the, the early Christians. All the interesting people, actually, all the mystics are, are on the outside. And they don't usually, I mean, some of them certainly come from wealth and privilege, but a lot of them don't. Um, so if you have a society that's constructed to allow you to at least take seriously spiritual growth and give you a path to do it, then far more people have the opportunity. But if you've got a society like ours, which sees that as kind of at best a thing you do on Sunday, you know, a sort of slightly silly thing that that silly people do on a Sunday, then that's that's the whole, that's the essence of the myth of progress. That's liberalism seeing itself as, as a reason when it's actually a religion, you know, telling us that all of that is basically silly old-fashioned nonsense, which will fade away. You know, but it's not fading away. There are more religious people in the world than ever. 87% of the world apparently is religious, and it was only 80% a few decades ago, which is really intriguing to me. So it's not going away. And maybe it's not going away because we all need we all need God, actually. And maybe that's the really and that's certainly the awkward conclusion I came to, which was not what I was <laughs> planning to end up believing at the age of 50. But there we are. There we are. God has a sense of humor as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, at least uh, if, if if our cases are concerned. Um, yeah, I, he's having a good giggle. I've, I also wanted to ask you um, a bit about England. You are, I think, a native Londoner around the area of London. Yeah, I suppose so. My family have been in London for at least a century or so. Yeah, sort of northwest London they grew up in, and so did I for a while. Yeah, and I've lived in London for, I think, about around six years, uh, fairly recently. Um, that's where mm. I met my husband. So I've, I've kind of have a bit of a history of London um, and with England as well. I, I, I love England so much, but I do mourn it a little bit. Like even even the time that I spent there, um, it's, a, it's a rapidly changing place. And to me, it felt like um, it was a bit of a an airport lounge because I, you know, when I, when I went to England, I went to England because of England, because, you know, I was, like I said, I was enraptured by, you know, the country vicar, the, all of these, you know, beautiful characters that kind of come out of this Anglo tradition or maybe less so a tradition, but at least kind of the, the, the myth of, of the eternal Anglo. And I was completely, you know, I, I love that, that idea. But when I got to London, um, it seemed like this was a place where you made money. And you had experiences, you enjoyed oh, yeah. yes. things and, and that was it. Uh, and you could go to the museums and all that stuff, but these were some experiences that you might enjoy among other experiences that you might enjoy in the menu of all the, you know, experience you had to accumulate to be a good, a good citizen of London. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it slowly, you know, it, it loses its shine after a while and, um, and even the other Romanians that I knew there, you know, I knew a few people who worked in banks, you know, like more, you know, Goldman Sachsy type people, but I also knew people who, you know, worked as taxi drivers or worked in cafes and, you know, and to them, London was only a place where you made money. They didn't, they did not have the time to accumulate the experiences. They only had time to accumulate the money and they were kind of chafing at the, at the culture and they really didn't like necessarily the, the UK population or they always thought, oh, you know, the UK people are racist or, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're against us. We're just here to, you know, make our money and then we go home and, you know, remittances culture type of stuff. stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It's, to me, it felt like, you know, this, this is, um, a, a weird way to sell your culture, especially if it is 
such a, a beautiful tradition. It really is one of the cradles of civilization, at least, you know, in the, in the last, you know, whatever, half a, half a millennium. This is, this is the place. So I don't know. Yeah. Again, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but it's, uh, I, I wonder what your feeling is as, as someone who's grown up there and, you know, what's, what's your relationship to, to London and kind of to, to England, especially now that you're not in England anymore because you, you live in Ireland. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I haven't lived in England for six years, but I mean, London and England are not the same thing. I mean, London hasn't really been England for about 200 years. <laughs> I would say, like you say, London was the, you know, London was the kind of world capital for a long time when the British Empire was running the show. Um, and so it's been this global city since at least sort of the 18, probably the early 1800s. And that's kind of gone into hyperdrive in the last few decades. Um, you know, London is exactly a place where you make money. It isn't really anything else now. Um, everyone in London is transient, including the English people. You know, um, the English people are a minority in London now, but nobody's in a majority. There's no, you know, it's 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 a sort of, it's just a, it, it is a giant, it's almost like a city-state London to me. Um, and it's sort of in England, but it's not of it. Um, and everybody just gets sucked in. And if you're not careful, you get sucked in and stuck there. I lived there for six years. You almost have to drag yourself out. It's like a force of, like a black hole. But it's also an increasingly horrible, impossible place to live because it's so expensive. People can't afford a house there. Um, it's just so crowded, and it's and it, there's no community, no community precisely because there's so many different cultures, and nobody stays anywhere. So it is exactly that, and it's it doesn't feel like the capital city of England. It just feels like a place that's like anywhere else. It's like it's it's. But they, you know, there are cities like that all over the world. It's the ultimate globalized city. These places exist to just sort of shovel people into the more of the machine and we get sucked in and we have to work and then we go somewhere else. And there isn't a sense of, I think the British establishment for a long time has represented machine capitalism rather than, than the people of England or the people of Britain or anything really. They don't have any sense of what their country is, whether they're Tory or Labour or whatever. They don't have any sense of culture. They don't have any sense of what the country should be or where it should go. All they believe in is money and progress, and that's it. And they don't, every, everything and everyone is interchangeable. So it's ultimate, it's the ultimate kind of den of liberal capitalism, if you like. Um, and it is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's radically changed in my lifetime, but I, I think it's been, it's been, you know, ever since the Industrial Revolution, England's been going in that direction. And I've always felt that in some ways, the English people were the first victims of the British Empire. Um, you know, they were the ones who had their land enclosed and they were the ones who were forced into the into the factories. And and so, yeah, there's a, it's a sort of, it's a sad place, England, and nobody seems to really care about it. It's it's a funny thing. It's, it's, it's a country that, it's fun to demonise it. And I think people love to demonise England, especially the English elites. The, you, you, if you want to pass to become one of the elites in England, you have to be as anglophobic as possible. <laughs> Absolutely necessary. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it, at the same time it has a reputation for being, as you say, this terrible, domineering, racist hellhole. But actually, most of its people feel like they don't know where they are. They're all very uprooted and lost. And that's what happens when a, a country is kind of eaten by this global machine. I think. And um, yeah, I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know. It's, it's and I don't live there anymore, so I don't have a kind of feel for what it's like on the ground. And when I did live there, I'd lived as far away from London as possible. Um, because as I say, it just sort of swallows everything up now, London. It just keeps expanding and expanding. Never seems to get any, never seems to stop. But yeah, I don't know what will happen to England when, you know, when the lights go out. I don't know what will happen when the fossil fuels start running out and when the growth 
when the growth splurge stops. Because it's a country which, to me, for a long time has, has, has been run by people who don't believe in anything except money. And, and I think that's just, uh, it's just very sad, actually. At the same time, if I wanted to be optimistic about it, I'd say there are lots and lots of people in England who are just very interested in local traditions and understanding aspects of the culture and trying to rebuild things at local level. It's very small, but it's happening out there. I've written a lot about that. So, so there might be some seeds of good things happening. But yeah, the old, the old sort of, um, the old Anglo world is very much gone, I think. It's been gone for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that that was my feeling as well. I remember going to a a, a party of uh, some uh, like minor minor bureaucrats, kind of in the in the European uh, uh, area. Some some people working for the European Union, and I just I, you know, being being from Eastern Europe I, and being a woman, I have more liberties to ask weird questions, so no one really took <laughs> <laughs> my face off. But I somehow I posed a question like, you know, do you guys think that there is any claim that the ancestral English people have about, um, you know, how their country is run, who is in their country, what's, you know, what allegiances there are, you know, what limits there are to certain, to certain things. And, and they were, you know, very, you know, <laughs> they shut it down. They were like, no, 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 no. Even, even con conceiving of the English people as a, an entity with rights or with any sort of, decision power you know like during the brexit vote um is is inconceivable you sh you should not do it do not open that that can of worms because uh people just don't know what to do with that they just you know start babbling things about racism or colonialism or things like that and i mean if, if you can if you can consider that you know the romanian people have a, a right of decision of what happens in their country and they're kind of an ethnos of, of people you know whatever there is a language as a culture you know there's there's not people wouldn't be chafing of, of me saying that okay you know the Romanian mm. people are doing this and there is a people but for for some reason the UK does not have that privilege there is no UK there is no people in the UK there is the UK has well it's, a, it's interesting I mean there isn't in England but I mean the, I, I think the thing is that I thought about this a lot because it's okay to talk about the Scottish in those terms or the Welsh or the Irish um actually um, I mean, people get a bit twitchy about it, um, understandably to some degree, but not the English. And I think it's because it's precisely because Britain was such a big empire. And the same thing is true of America now, right? So if you've run half the world and then your empire collapses, which is really what's happened, then for all sorts of reasons, lots of people don't like you. Um, but there's also a, a kind of cultural self-loathing amongst the English elites, which has been around for a long time. I mean, George Orwell was writing really well about it in the 1930s, very famously. He said, you know, this, it's, it's, you know it, it's harder to get. Now, he said the average English intellectual would rather steal from a poor box than stand during the national anthem. Um, he said it's the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their own nationality. Right? And that was in the 1930s when the, the empire was still around and all the rest of it. So that's, it's a long-standing thing that, there's a kind of weird intellectual self-loathing amongst the ruling class in England. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's tied up with the fact that they felt guilty about the empire at the same time as they benefited from it. Um, but I think that there's, as, as the country has shrunk, you, you have precisely this attitude, certainly amongst the elite in England, that it's everyone else has a nation, but we don't. It's exactly that sort of, you know, the, the people who want us to celebrate cultural diversity, which is not a bad idea, don't want us to celebrate English culture. They're usually either telling us that doing that, as you say, is, is racist or far right, or they're telling us that English culture doesn't exist anyway. Um, 
it's a weird, it's a very weird it's not logical at all it's it's a very irrational thing um it's uh, Roger Scruton called it oikophobia it's a, a sort of hatred of your of your home and it is weird and it's not shared by most of the population it's an elite it's an elite discourse like you say it's um fine to talk about i mean as you say you could certainly have an easy chat with your average english liberal elitist about romanian culture they'd have a good old chat about that find it very interesting but but not english culture it's a funny thing and i've i've come up against it myself and when I've tried to write about it, I've been attacked for it in, in, and accused of all sorts of things that aren't true, usually, the usual stuff. I mean, I, you know, I'm married to an Indian woman and I have two mixed-race children, but I'm, I still get called a racist when I write about <laughs> English culture, which is intriguing to me. Um, it's a very, yeah, it is a strange and a sad thing. Um, I, don't really know, I don't really know what to do about it. I think it's, um, I think maybe... It's just to do with the fact that the English became globalized before anybody else, you know, forcibly, actually, really. And we had, so we kind of, with the Industrial Revolution, we lost our folk culture before anyone else. And we lost our sort of sense of place. And we, we were sort of forced onto ships and into factories and the rest of it. And so we sort of lost ourselves, I think. Um, and that's probably not true in Romania. I mean, you're talking about the old superstitious ladies in the villages. But I think that kind of folk culture is, is the basis of a, of, a, of a country. It's the basis of any culture in a way. So if you haven't got a sense of being connected to a place through time, then you haven't got the wellspring of a culture. You've got a sort of globalized marketplace. And I think England has become a marketplace. It's been constructed as a marketplace. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. It's a sad thing, really. Yes, I think um, it's also something that you can only do from a position of, of strength, from a position in a way of, of superiority. Um, because if, if you look at um, cultures that maybe are not as, um, you know, as successful, at least civilizationally, as, as, the, as the Anglo culture, um, let's say, take Romania, you see a lot of, um, you know, the history, the mythology that we have around Romania, which is kind of a young state. It's, it's built through the amalgamation of different uh, regions, you know, that have more or less in common. We have a common language, but, you know, there, there's also lots of regional differences. So it's, we need kind of to plump up our mythology with with all sorts of ideas of, you know, defeating the Turks, which happened, you know, a few times, but the rest of the times the Turks just completely wiped out everything and burnt everything to the ground. So um, defeating the Polish once, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things. And you take that, those little nuggets of, you know, hero mythology and you build those up. And um, we also have um, almost like a a kind of an ancient alien style um, view on on the ancient populations here, like the, the Dacians. You know, some people think that they had mystical powers, that they were like one of these huge like Atlantis type civilizations. So there's all sorts of, you know, people trying to make something much bigger than, you know, the actual historical record would would warrant. Um, but the, the English seem to be doing the opposite. So in a way they have kind of like this um, self-deprecating history because they come from a position of strength, of, of overwhelming yeah. strength compared to almost anyone on, on the continent, almost anyone in the world. So, yeah. No, I think that's what it is. I think it's a reaction to that, because if you look at, say, the English uh, mythology that they constructed during the High Victorian period, you know, when we were basically running everything, um, you know, there was this great myth of almost racialized Anglo-Saxon superiority and how we'd all come from King Alfred and defeated foreigners back then, and we're defeating all the foreigners now. And showing them the error of their ways and giving them a good old dose of, of, of sort of Christian Anglo culture. Um, and so we had this kind of obviously deeply arrogant imperialist attitude as empires tend to have. And the, the Americans took that over from us and they've been 
stomping around the world, pushing American culture on us for the last hundred years. And you do, yeah, you get a reaction to that, obviously, amongst colonised peoples, but you also get a reaction amongst your own kind of elites. It's something else that George Orwell sort of skewered, actually. And he said, he said, you know, every every right-thinking progressive person in England, and again, this is back in the 30s and 40s, knows that the empire is a terrible thing, but they also know that they personally benefit from it. And so what they do is they kind of denounce it verbally very loudly, but they're not prepared to actually end it because their lifestyle depends on it, right? The, the, the comfort zone of being a sort of intellectual progressive or an intellectual anything, you know, is always built on somebody in Asia doing some crappy work in a sweatshop because you, you've colonised them. So, so you've got that sort of... And I, I feel that sort of still goes on, and not just in Britain, actually. You have this elite that's entirely dependent on globalization, which we all are. We're all part of that, right? And you can sort of denounce it, but if you actually change it substantially, it's going to make us a lot poorer. If, we, if the world was going to be fairer, we'd all be a lot poorer, and that's the reality of it. And we don't really want to be poorer. We, we would like the world to be fairer. It's, it's, it's like the conversation around climate change. I was an activist for a long time on environmental issues. And, you know, people say all the time that they want to stop climate change. And I'm sure they mean it. We all mean it. But we all create it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you can't stop climate change without the people who consume a lot. That's us consuming a lot less. So that's the bullet to bite. Um, so, yeah, it comes down to exactly that. that, that it's, it's a sort of, I think it's probably just something that happens to, to sort of rotting empires, to be honest. It probably happened in, in, in ancient Rome as well. People just become embarrassed about themselves. They lose track of themselves. I think if you become that powerful and dominant as a culture, you sort of lose yourself, actually. And then when that all shrinks away, when your glorious empire dies off, then you think, well, what am I beyond the empire? And I think the English, especially the English elites, don't really know the answer to that yet. You know, we don't know what we are. And as you say, then some people just spend a lot of time denying that we existed in the first place because they're so ashamed of of a particular aspect of history. But it's not, you know, you can't, you can't have a country that's ashamed of itself. It just stops being a country. You know, at some point you have to rediscover who you are. And I think it's important for the English to do that. I think we do need to discover who we are, rediscover who we are. At all sorts of levels, um, which you know it may happen. I don't know, but yeah, I, I hope it does because you know, for for people like me and you know other brain drain, even even if it were to continue on its neoliberal path, the, mm. the interesting part of England is it has to do with England. You know, there is there's something that you go to seek rather than because mm. you could go to you know Singapore, you'd be paid more. You could go to Beijing, you'd be paid more. Um, but you go to London because there is something in London that is unique and it has to do with the Englishness of the place. Uh, and if mm. that is completely hollowed out, then even, you know, even if we just make a, you know, capitalist realist uh, argument to, uh, for, for that, uh, it's still, you know, it's still not, not the best. Um, no, well, it's not anything. I mean, it's just a nowhere place. And that's, that's the globalization project. That's, that's what it aims for. I mean, the, the, it's utopian. And the, the definition of utopia literally is, is no place. And that's what London is becoming. Um, and that's what New York becomes and Paris becomes and everywhere becomes if it, any globalised place. I mean, the, the essence of England, I think, is in the small towns and in the countryside now. I think it probably always was. And you can still find England there and you can still find a a, a good dose of kind of um, that, some some dose of that sort of old old tradition out there as well. But, you know, it's the same everywhere. I live in Ireland and the same thing is happening to Dublin. The Irish people complain about that more and more. Dublin is just full of skyscrapers and banks and the headquarters of Google and and it's becoming very transient and Ireland also is becoming a kind of airport lounge place a bit less so because it's smaller 
you know, Ireland was a colony for a long time. It's never had an empire. And it doesn't have that sense of cultural self-hatred that the English have. But it's still becoming that sort of utopian skyscraper place where people just come in to make money. And that's that's the model. And um, that's presented as the virtuous model. You know, that's the yeah. that's the, the globalised borderless utopia where everybody gets on. But ultimately, if you, if you go there, there's no culture anywhere. There's nothing that comes from a place or that comes from a, a sort of cultural stream anywhere at all. And I think I, I identify a lot of the kind of current malaise around the world with exactly that drive to make everywhere cultureless, you know, and it's presented as this kind of sort of John Lennonist, the world shall live as one and all hold hands and everything, which is fine um, in one sense, but ultimately it leads to, yeah, it just leads to cultural death everywhere because there's nothing unique about anywhere. And everybody's looking at the same Facebook page on the same phones from, from Singapore to, to Scotland. So what does it mean to be in a place? What does it mean to come from a place? What does it mean to to have any of those discussions? Um, that's the big that's the big picture, you know. That's what the the machine culture is doing to us all over the world. And I think the English just got there first. You know, we globalized the world. We became globalized, and so we started to get culturally hollowed out before anyone else. But we're all sort of walking the same path. Mm, it seems to me that. Even the oikophobia is an export um, because you, you've had, um, I mean, I've seen Black Lives Matter marches in Romania, <laughs> which is quite interesting and exotic because we don't really, uh, we don't really have that much of a black population. We have a few foreign students or something and it's just not, it's just not a thing. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of, you know, all sorts of ways in which this, um, this deconstruction of the culture is fueled by the similar philosophy as well. Like, you know, maybe, maybe for Romania, maybe you have um, uh, tensions with, we've had, you know, with homophobia, with the relationship between men and women. So other aspects of woke culture, but it's, it's interesting to see the, the most ridiculous things, you know, as well. Like they, everything appears because this, this culture or, you know, whatever's coming from the West, you know, this, this dissolving function, um, is piped in hot through every social media channel, through every, you know, even Netflix. Watch watch Netflix for a year and tell me that you're not, you know, full of brain worms that are, you know, exactly, mm. <laughs> essentially. Well, no, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it, the West is still enormously culturally dominant. I mean, because I come from the West, I only, I don't see it from the outside, you know, because I don't come from a small non-Western country. I mean, I know plenty of people who do, but so I don't, you know, it, it's a funny thing because the West... At the same time as the West's so-called culture is going out to the world and dissolving cultures everywhere else, we're also dissolving our own. And so what we have is this kind of global machine culture which originated here, but isn't really of here anymore. It's kind of globally goes out through social media. So like you say, people are doing the same protests, using the same language. Um, and all of this stuff is not coming from the people themselves who are saying, here's a problem we've identified and we want to go and solve it. They're just basically copying people on the other side of the world, um, which is never a good look. Um, and, and you end up with a sort of weirdly sort of globalized homogenous protest movement as well. I mean, you know, everyone protesting about the same thing in distinct places. Um, and it's like, it's like a version of consumerism. It's like everyone drinking Coke in different countries, you know. Um, and it's the same thing. And it comes from the West because the West sells this kind of corporate universalism, which poses as, it sort of poses as, as, as the brotherhood of man. You know, and the brotherhood of man is a good thing uh, in the sense that, you know, we get on with each other and we stop fighting and we don't 
do what humans are so good at, which is getting into tribes and killing the other tribes. So it sort of it sells itself as that, but it isn't really that. It's it's a it's a hijacked corporate consumer blob that just sucks real culture out of everything. And I think I don't know when I look at the younger generations now who are very into the, the, the you know the, the woke categorization and race and gender and, and all, all of these things that are so massive. It seems to me that it's almost like they're, they're they're very lost, and that's what they latch onto because they haven't been presented with real culture, because it's kind of been taken away. So, because the things that used to hold humans up, local communities and the village and the street and uh, maybe the church or whatever your religious function was, the family, the stuff that kind of at a human level, organic level, made you human, for better or for worse, with all of its problems, that's all kind of stripped away in the more advanced countries, so called. And, so, and people need community, but they don't know where to look. And you can find it online or, or, or you can find a toxic version of it online. So you can find people offering you these things which purport to be about community or identity and you get to join a group and you get to fight the bad guys and you know here's your identity. And also you can make up your own identity now. You can construct it. You can be what you want to be. It's a consumer identity factory that you can just click into. And so it gives, I think it gives a lot of quite, young people who don't know what the hell is going on are sort of something to belong to. Um, but it, then, it, then it twists that and turns it into a, a, a kind of destructive cultural battleground that people are just throwing things at each other all day. And it's a, I think that you know, a society that is a culture that's real, a culture that's rooted, a culture where people know who they are, people don't need to talk about their identity. It's not what you do in a normal, normal place. You don't hear normal people in... in villages around the world talking about what their identity is. You only need to talk about it when it's under threat or when you think it's under threat or where you think you want to take somebody else's out of the picture. So once everybody's talking about this thing called identity, which in any case they've made up on the internet in most cases, then you're in a mess. You know, It's because you haven't got real culture that comes from actual places, I think, because that's all been ripped up and fed into the machine, that you hear that you get a culture war. You get a culture war when there's no culture put it that way, weirdly enough. Yes, yes, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I wonder what you think of the argument that um, this is kind of all born out of convenience in a way, in a way that, you know, the, the rejection of culture, the the abolition of community is a result of not really needing it anymore. It's a, it's a revealed preference, uh, as, you know, the economist would say, you know, everything is disintermediated. You don't need to know the shoemaker. You do not need to be friendly with your uh, butcher. You do not need to, you don't need to go to the church. No one needs to help you, you know, um, in store your grains in winter. You really don't need the community. There is someone who will deliver things either from the market or either from the state with a check or you know, there, there's, there's someone who's, there's, there's a safety net all mm. around you. Um, and if, if you can choose, you, you know, you can have the most, um, low involvement, low obligation community online, which, you know, no one expects anything of you. You can be anything you want to be. Um, and you know, that's, that's a revealed preference. That's what people actually want. That's what they do. Uh, and they don't really want to have, you know, stinky old community where they, where they have to get along with, with people they might. Yeah. Not. Well, that, that's the promise of rational economic man, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. It's interesting that because I think, I think to some degree there's some truth in that, right? Because communities are inconvenient. And, and they have problems with them as well, right? I mean, 
you know, it's, it's good to focus on the downsides of community sometimes. It's good to focus on some of the small-mindedness and the prejudice and the tribalism and the ease of putting yourself into an ethnic or religious or cultural group and then wanting to attack others and going for outsiders and all of that stuff. It's really, you know, that's not to be downplayed because that happens all the time in human history. Um, and so, as I say, if you go back to the history of liberalism, I think, and see it coming out of these European religious wars, you see all these rational, economic and philosophical men, that usually were men, saying, yeah, right, we're going to create this rational world where we don't need these things anymore because people don't want them. And sort of, to a degree, I think it's true, right? It's easy to go to the supermarket and to chat with your butcher and go around the town and walk to 10 different shops. And, you know, it's it's easy to click on something than have to have a relationship with somebody. So the convenience is easy, but obviously it hollows out society. Because if it didn't, then we'd be living in the perfect society because that's pretty much how the whole thing is set up in the West in a place like Britain. The whole country's set up to be like that. So we ought to be living in love and peace and harmony, but we're really not. It doesn't work because it turns out that we're not homo economicus. You know, it's that back to that argument about the failure of liberalism again. We're not just individuated actors divorced from stuff. And even though the job of being in a community or being in a religion or being in a country or whatever is actually kind of hard work and a bit messy and not always pleasant, it's also, it's like a human need. Community is a deep human need, a sense of belonging, a sense of place, a sense of tradition in some way, a sense of community at the local level. It really matters. You shouldn't idolize it, but it really matters, you know? And, and if, you, if you demolish it in order to create this perfect liberal utopia, then you get to where we are now. The whole place starts eating itself. So yeah, that's it, it's sort of, you know, we do like convenience, but we don't like the consequences of convenience. It's, it's Again, it's like climate change, right? We don't like the climate change, but we like doing the stuff that causes it. So again, it comes back to, you know, it's almost like that question you asked earlier about whether you could have a sort of mass, mass awakening without having to do the personal work. It's a bit like, it, it sort of feels like that to me, that you have to, there's no easy solution to that other than by, starting to build up from the ground again and rediscovering the stuff that we threw out because for 99% of human history people have lived in communities of some kind or another and now we don't in the west and it doesn't really work and that's pretty obvious the solution isn't obvious um but the, the problem is so yeah the economist will keep plugging that line until the lights go out but <laughs> i think they're on the wrong path yes i think it's um it's also about kind of legibility, you know, what, what is readable to, like you maybe describe it, the machine. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think a part of that machine is the state and part of that is the market. And there are different indicators that people give off, you know, these revealed preferences, what they buy, how they consume, how they engage with your platform. Uh, and the machine can only react to those indicators, but there's a lot of stuff happening below the below the surface on the on the bottom of the of the iceberg, and I think that's mm. that's the most important stuff. So that's the illegible stuff, you know the um, the or, or things that are legible, but they're so they don't seem to be correlated. Like you know, mm. rise in suicides, you know, depression, anxiety being you know increasing across the board, um, and even though you know maybe engagement numbers on Facebook are up. There might be, you know, the, on the other side of the coin, you you might have all of these, you know, negative things that are these externalities that, you know, are not captured by the system. Um, yeah, so completely. I mean, it's, it's the stuff that they can't measure, the stuff that the algorithm can't measure, measure exactly that. So, and as we move into kind of Zuckerberg's paradise where the, 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 the algorithm is running everything, and we've all got our kind of COVID passports and our social credit systems and everything's measured and, and, and tracked, um, that's kind of, you know, that's the machine's, 
utopian perfection coming towards us where in theory everything's great because uh, as you say our needs are being met but the stuff that doesn't get measured is the most important stuff you know it's the love and the affection and the and the sense of place or, or or family or the feeling you have for the the tree in your garden or the sense of the beauty of the sunset or whatever it is that moves you in your heart that can never be measured because that stuff can never be measured the stuff that can be measured is often it's just not the most important stuff about being a human you know we need we need material benefits obviously but if if you get stuck in a worldview which we have where you think that the measurable material stuff is pretty much everything or that the rest will take care of itself and you try to build a society then then you you go into the algorithm you know you go into the metaverse and that's where we're heading we're heading into this rationalist metaverse which will it's just going to be a spiritual catastrophe actually and yes. and that's why i find that the sort of religious path for all of its faults um is taking you back to the heart of things because you know the heart of things is the heart and 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 the relationship with god is also the relationship with creation and with other people and you know what does christ tell you to do pick up your cross and 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 deny yourself and start loving other people when you don't want to because none of us really does want to love our neighbor but we have to <laughs> and so once you have to start making yourself do that then you have to start focusing on all of this unmeasurable stuff you can't just be going out there counting the money so for better or for worse that's that's what you have to do um but yeah if we keep going down this track where the algorithm is going to give us paradise based on all of the information we've given it, then we go to hell, actually. I mean, we, we take ourselves to this version of hell where everything looks really shiny, but is actually spiritually awful, which probably is the definition of hell. Yeah. So in a way, Christianity is the the opposite of a revealed preference. It's it's kind of the... Well, yeah, it is, because you have to do a lot of stuff you don't want to do, don't you? I mean, you have to, as you say, you have to deny yourself. You have to be crucified. I mean, that's the story of Christianity. It's a very inconvenient religion. You don't just get to make a sacrifice to God uh, to get what you want. You have to sacrifice yourself, like Christ did, um, which none of us wants to do. Um, and you have to turn the other cheek and you have to walk two miles when you just want to walk one and all of these kind of inconvenient things that you don't want to do. Um, but yes, if you do them, it just makes you focus a little bit more on others and on the world and on your heart and on the stuff that matters and, of course, on God. And then it's just that the world opens itself up in a different way. And, and that path, kind of spiritual path, the path back, if you like, I can't see any other path to walk that's going to get us out of the mess we're in, you know, whether or not you're a Christian or an Orthodox Christian or whatever. If, you, if you're not walking towards God, you're treading water, you know. That's, <laughs> that's how I feel now. And I wouldn't have imagined myself saying those words even like a year or two ago. But I think that's, that's where we are. We've, we've, we've spiritually emptied ourselves out. We've tried the path of, of, of nothing but the material, and we've ended up where we are. And if we keep walking down that path, we're going to get into bigger and bigger, you know, bigger and bigger trouble. Yeah, I, I think in a way, for me, my, my path to exactly this conclusion was purely material. I still have not had, you know, a moment of epiphany, or you know, I've not been, you know, I've not been chased by Christ as you've described. Uh, but uh, I've I've kind of come to this conclusion almost through like an evolutionary lens. Um, because I, I do believe that it is part of of 
human life. Overcoming is part of human life. You cannot do without it. We're essentially made to be convivial. We're made to overcome together. Uh, and what if if you you know deracinate the human animal? If you really want to take it, you know, take that lens from its purpose, the way it's been, you know, what is what it's done for hundreds of thousands of years, it's going to drive itself mad, uh, or it's it's going to be like a caged animal, or some, you know, something in a zoo, or completely in a, in a different environment than it's than it's meant to be. So I think even from that perspective, even if you don't want to, you know, take on the spiritual baggage, you you can see that you know there's just something wrong with. Um, with this hedonic treadmill, this hamster wheel that we're presented. And if you fall off at, at one point, you know, like you said, you know, it's very, very much hell. You know, there, there's, yeah. there's nothing outside of it. Yeah. And, you know, the, fall, the Christian tradition of the fall, which fascinates me, you know, the fall away from God, the fall away from communion. The fall is when you fall away from God and you fall into yourself. So what, what you get offered by the little tempting snake in Eden is, is the chance to be powerful in yourself to walk away from God, to walk away from everything else in the garden and just to build your own world, to build your own Tower of Babel, which is what we've done. Again, we're always making this mistake. So you fall into yourself and you believe yourself is all there is. And like you say, you can't live like that. I mean, you, you can go back to you go back to London. That's what London is now. London's the hedonic treadmill. London's the new Babel. London's the place where everyone is out for themselves, or even if they're not, that's what they're told to be. Um, and... It's the opposite of conviviality, as every kind of global city is, and as every, yeah, every sort of anti-culture today is. It takes us away from just the small things, you know, the small things that matter. Um, and that's if you have a if you have a culture that's dedicated to taking you away from the small things and taking you into yourself, then you get where we are. You get this horrible, pornified, you know, disgusting individualist, so-called individualist culture. I mean, I look at. I've got teenage children, approaching teenage children, and I, we homeschool our kids so they don't have any smartphones or anything, and luckily they don't want them. But the thought of them just going online and seeing the 24-hour hardcore porn that's available for 12-year-olds and having that presented them as a liberation project, I mean, that one thing alone is enough for me to look at this and say this culture is in big trouble. Any culture that does that, that makes that stuff available to children and then tells them it's good for them, or at least tells them that any number of kind of, uh, you know, things like of that kind of liberatory rather than corrupting, that's a corrupted culture, you know, that's a corrupted culture. And everybody kind of feels that, even if we know we're not supposed to say, you can feel it in your bones when you're a parent and you think, I'm not, I'm not showing my children that, don't tell me that's good for them, I know what's good for my kids and that isn't, right, the stuff they're supposed to see and applaud now is not to be applauded, it's not, it's wrong. Um, but, you know, because we're very postmodern, we don't say wrong anymore. <laughs> you don't say wrong or right, which is another thing that the religion will take you back to. You are allowed to say, you know, that's actually wrong, and this is right. That's the wrong path, and this is the right path. And again, it's one of those things we know about. We can sort of feel it. And just as I say, that one thing, what my kids could see if they had a smartphone, the fact that I would be so anxious about that is, is, is enough for me to say we've gone in a very bad direction. Yeah, and I feel like the 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 biggest uh, leading indicator of of a dying civilization it is literally the fact that we have stopped reproducing, or we're, we're very you know we're declining in a in a very. I mean, 
people around the world are reproducing, but the West itself, you know, the, the ancestral peoples of the West uh, are not really into that. Uh, and I, I wonder what you make of this, um, especially kind of with the ecological lens as well, because I feel like in ecology, there's also kind of this a bit of an anti-human strain where it's like, you know, it would be it would be nice if, you know, we could, you know, we could protect the planet. And if, we, if there were fewer of us, it might be might be even nicer. So I don't know. Is there a tension in you with with these ideas or? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what's interesting to me is the collapse in sperm counts, actually, in the West. I have no idea why that's happening, but some places are dropping by 90%. I don't know if that's just in the West or whether it's global or what the, what the cause of it is. That's a slightly different question from why people aren't having kids. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of collapse in reproduction rates in the West is what happens if you just, A, make everybody work all the time rather than raising families, and B, pursue radical individualism. Again, if you fall into the self and you think that your personal pleasure is to be pursued amongst above all other things, then kind of kids get in the way, you know, because <laughs> they do get in the way, kids. They, they, you just have to spend your life with them. They're hard work. So family is hard work and you have a society that doesn't really support family because family gets in the way of work and family gets in the way of individuation and family gets in the way of total sexual pleasure 24-7, which sells. Um, so we don't want that. Uh, and so that is that is what leads to the collapse in a society. I mean, look, ecologically speaking, humans are doing a vast amount of damage to the world. Um, the, the ones who are doing the most damage are the richest ones. Um, it's not necessarily about numbers, but it is about what you consume. And that's back, back to the machine again. Um, what matters is having a healthy culture and a, a culture that isn't reproducing because it's kind of lost the will to live. <laughs> which I think is what we are. It's not a healthy culture, ecologically or culturally or anything else. Um, it is, I think, I mean, in a way, it means that the the sort of the, the global machine is not sustainable, literally, because it can't sustain itself. Because when people walk into it, they don't want to continue, as you say, they don't just don't want to have children. I mean, the, the basic foundation of a culture is is bringing up families and and teaching them the culture's stories and passing those stories on, but we don't have any stories anymore really to pass on, except the ones we saw on Netflix and we don't have any children to pass them on to. So yeah, it's, it's almost like, um, it's almost like a sort of a mechanism clicks in when a culture is so unhealthy that, that it doesn't get reproduced or something. I don't know what it is. It's very, it's just a general, it's interesting when you look at the opinion polls, you see a lot of young people who say just don't want to have kids. A lot of them because they're afraid of the future, they're afraid of climate change, or they just generally don't like the culture that they're in. And again, I think that's a pretty unique thing in history. It's certainly a very, very unusual one for people to say they don't want to have families and, and for the culture to sort of tell them that they don't really need to anyway. But, you know, when we all go into the metaverse, we'll be able to just invent our own children and do what we like and put them on pause when, they, when we get fed up with them. And that's... Um, Again, that's that's the fall. There we are, into the self and away from away from God and away from community. We're we're just an intermediary step uh, until AI takes over. Obviously, you know, which was going to well, be. Well, so we're here. Yes, yeah, so we're here. We're, it's, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there. I mean, there are people who believe that. You know, that's um, the lovely, our lovely friends in Silicon Valley who seem to be controlling the world. I mean, when when the world is being built by the kind of person who runs the Silicon Valley companies, which it is, you know, the way that we see the world is being constructed by these people. The technology we use to see it is constructed by them. The search engines are designed by them. We're shown what to think. We're told what to see. The algorithms are designed by them. You look at those people and you think, do you want them running your culture? Because they are running your culture wherever you are in the world now. If you've got a phone, 
those people have designed your culture for you and all your ways of seeing and the way your children are going to see. I don't want my children brought up by Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, definitely not. <laughs> the most ominous thing about this is that these people are only the first domino. There, there is, I mean, you don't even have to say AI or something. There is, you know, the, the optimizing function is all you need for kind of partial AI. We have partial AI everywhere. It's kind of like a multi-tentacled thing. Any, any sort of product in the market is essentially a, a product of a, an optimizing function. It's been, you know, you've, you've been presented five different types of cigarettes. Four have died out. Number five has remained. It's the most potent. It's the best. People buy it, you know, and then do this like five, 10, 25 times. You have an optimizing function. You have kind of a self-thinking element of the market, one one of its tentacles doing that particular thing in one direction. And then you have that 10,000 times over. And then, you know, you don't need the singularity. AI is already here and it's, you know, it's working and it's working on you. And, you know, even you don't even have to have an engineer designing it. The algorithm shapes itself just by what survives through each iteration. So it's, um, yeah, the, the the future is already here and it's, it's quite... Uh, no, it is. It's absolutely designed for us. And it's so interesting that the creation of these technologies seems so inevitable. I mean, armed robot dogs is the latest one I saw last week, you know, going into war zones. I mean, if you're, if you're building armed robot dogs and you're not asking some serious questions about yourself, you have to say, okay. who are these people doing this? Why are they doing What What do they think they're doing? What, what do they think they're achieving? Is progress. Any newfangled thing, any new... Exactly, yes. Precisely that. If it's got if it if it's got if it's got silicon chip in it, then it must be inherently good for humanity. Even if it's got guns attached, <laughs> it's designed to hunt you down. I mean, it's like these people have never seen the Terminator. You know, it, it's a funny thing. I, I sometimes think that you know, science fiction writers have spent a hundred years warning us about where this is going, and we oh. still just do it anyway. It's almost like some of these guys in Silicon Valley use Brave New World as a guidebook rather than a warning. Yeah, that's what I want to say. They've they've seen the Terminator and they thought it was amazing. Yeah, they think this is this is great. The Matrix. Let's let's do it. Let's see what we can do. Exactly. So uh, I know we're coming up on time here. Uh, I want to ask you the question of the show before I let you go. Um, do you have a uh, a thinker that was an inspiration to you? Um, a subversive thinker, maybe living or dead, whoever that you might um, that you think people should should read more of or, or know about so it could be any any mm. type of, of intellectual or any type of creative probably about. a lot of them there's probably a lot of them aren't there but i mean one one i've been writing about recently is jacques Ellul. i don't know if any other of your your guests have mentioned him he's a french thinker um wrote a very big dense but really good book called the technological society and it's about 50 years old now if not more but it it lays all of this out very clearly also wrote some very good books about christianity and some very good books about um, just tradition generally is, is something of a traditionalist, I would say, definitely. But, uh, a, you know, a, a radical thinker really understood very early on in the 50s and the 60s exactly where the technological society was taking us and and the kind of the, the spiritual death wish that we had. Um, it's kind of, it, it's spooky reading these kind of books now. I mean, he's, he's a very good example. Another one would be Lewis Mumford, who said something very similar uh, in a similar kind of time frame. Um, but Jack Ellul is, is well worth reading. He wrote a lot of very, very interesting books, some of them quite short, um, really, yeah, laying out where we were going and also giving us some some spiritual um, sucker, actually, showing us where where the weak points in the culture were and what we could do about it. So I'd really recommend him. Not always an easy read, but really worth trying. 
Okay. Yeah. And and there's there's another writer who wrote about the technological society, uh, Theodore Kaczynski. He's been recommended mm. on this podcast. Yes, indeed. Well, I wrote an essay about him actually years ago. Um, yeah. Good, good old Ted. Yes. Or not. Yeah. I mean, the, the Unabomber Manifesto is, is a dis- disturbingly predictive, uh, correctly predictive uh, manifesto, despite the, the horrors of what he did. Um, his analysis um, is kind of so clinical. And, and sort of sharp. It's very difficult to read it and think, mm. yep. Yes. <laughs> I read <laughs> you it what was as well, and I had a lot of raised eyebrows. I was like, mm, actually, <laughs> it's pretty Yeah, easy. well, there's a very famous essay that was written by a man called Bill Joy. Um, uh, it was called, what was it called? I think it was called Why the Future Doesn't Need Us. And he wrote it back in 1990. He was the founder of Sun Microsystems, so it was a big Silicon Valley guy. And he read the Unabomber Manifesto thinking that he was going to despise it, and then he uncomfortably realized he agreed with it. Didn't agree with what Kaczynski did, of course, but he agreed with the analysis and he was coming from the inside. And he wrote this very good essay called Why the Future Doesn't Need Us, which you can read online. And he said, look, this guy's basically right about where this is leading. You know, this is 25 years ago. And he said, look, it exactly is taking us towards the matrix of the better first and the control of humans by their machines. And, you know, despite Kaczynski's actions, you need to take this seriously, which, of course, nobody did. Um, But yeah, it's all of these, all this stuff has been predicted for so long. We all knew it was coming. We can't say we weren't warned, you know, but we just kind of did it anyway. So uh, the future doesn't need us. So we better start doing something about that. Exactly. And on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Christmas. Yeah. But before, before I completely let you go, I wanted to say that you, you did kind of leave us with uh, what the internet likes to call a white pill um, about these little nuclei of, um, of, return or, or reconstruction of kind of revivification of, um, of of tradition, which are happening in the UK, some are happening in, in the US as well, some are happening even here in Romania. So there is hope, but it has to come from the lower scale. From, from I think so. I think you start on the ground, you start where you are, you start with your community and, and you start building again. And it's actually, you know, it's when you look at the global scale of things, things can seem to me fiendishly kind of depressing, you know, the direction of travel of things. But at the local scale, things can be really exciting and optimistic at the scale, scale at which you can achieve things, you know. So, yes, absolutely. You start small, as, as Wendell Berry would say, you know, small is small is where everything begins. Small is beautiful. So, um, yeah, start there and start building, I'd say. Excellent. So think local, act local, be local, local. <laughs> so um, Not a bad start, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paul. I want to uh, direct everyone to uh, the Abbey of Misrule. Is it at paulkingsnorth.substack.com? I think it is, yeah. Okay, perfect. And uh, please do uh, buy Paul's books and uh, support Paul in, in, in every way you can because he is a, a very important thinker and I'm, I'm very happy to, to have, the, have had the chance to, to speak with you. That's great to talk to you too. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you 